Turn, turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 1 once again. It's found in your pew Bible on page 1496. This is a reminder. Um, this Advent season we've been looking at what is often called the mothers of Jesus. They are uh, ancestors, not descendants, just so you know. I know some of you caught that last week. Of Jesus, four mothers of Jesus uh, mentioned in Matthew 1's genealogy. Uh, for the sake of time, we were not able to uh, focus upon Ruth, um, but we've looked so far at uh, Tamar and at uh, Rahab, and today uh, we're looking at Bathsheba. Matthew chapter, one, Matthew chapter 1, here now the reading of God's holy word. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihu. Abihu, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliab. Eliab, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. It's important that we note that Matthew uses a particular terminology to discuss Bathsheba. He says, unlike the other women who are listed in uh, the genealogy, Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. He does this on purpose. Because it's by using this phrase, Uriah's wife, that Matthew not only is wanting us to think of Bathsheba, who in fact was married to David and could have simply been listed as David's wife, or simply as Bathsheba, but he wants us to think of that moment in redemptive history. You know which one I'm talking about. The moment of David's adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, which is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read both chapters. I'm going to read 2 Samuel chapter 11 for you, but I'm going to mention for us in the sermon the importance of of 2 Samuel chapter 12, um, by referencing uh, a few of the scriptures, okay? 
So 2 Samuel chapter 11, which can be found in your pew Bibles on page 486, says this. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's army and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? But David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day. Tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the beds? Why did you get so close to the wall? If, you ask, if he asked you this, then say to him, Also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. And the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. That's far the reading of God's holy word. What is different about this morning's sermon as compared to the ones we've looked at so far is that the story of Tamar and the story of Rahab and even the story of Ruth, if we had taken time to look at that, 
Those women are the primary characters of that narrative. They're a focal point. They're a lead character. And this story, Bathsheba says two words in the Hebrew. I am pregnant. In fact, those are the only words she says in all of the book of 2 Samuel. It is almost as if the writer of this narrative wants to strip away all human emotion, all, uh, all thoughts of intrigue, and he wants us to focus upon the actions of David. You know, David, the man after God's own heart, the slayer of Goliath, David, the singer, the sweet singer and psalmist of Israel, the lover of God's law, the Psalm 119, David, the one who danced for the ark, that David. He wants us to focus upon the king who is, up until this point, the anointed one, the Messiah, who Israel may think is that promised one, the new Adam. But to find out, he's a man just like the rest of us. So this morning, Bathsheba waits for the coming king who will save her and not use her, who will adore her and not abuse her, who will die for her, not kill for her. That's what we're looking at today. 2 Samuel chapter 11 displays for us the story of the fallen king. The fallen king who is in a sense in his very own garden, the Garden of Eden who is displayed with his very own fruit of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, who partakes and falls and shows himself to not be the anointed one who is truly to come, the Messiah. But 2 Samuel chapter 12 is important for us because it shows us the grace that restores It shows us that there's a reason why this story is in the scriptures. There's a reason why Matthew chooses to say Uriah's wife. Because we are meant to to get a look into it and to realize that David failed so that we would know David is not the Messiah. So that the Messiah would come as the true king of David. As the one we spoke of in the Psalter hymnal. Remember David. Remember David, not for David's sake, for the seed of the woman who would come, the true king, the prophet priest king, that is Christ our Lord. So let's look at this. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to look at this chapter by contrasting David's interactions with the various characters. There's David and Bathsheba, there's David and Uriah, there's David and Joab, and there's David and God, Yahweh. Okay, The first few verses of 
chapter 11 of 2 Samuel are important to us because the key is in to the reality that David has gotten a little lazy, that David has in some way begun to stumble, begun to look upon his sin and think it's a little bit more enticing than it used to be. We have a couple of clues in the narrative of 2 Samuel that key us into this. One, we're told that when David ascended and took the throne in Jerusalem, that he carried on more wives and concubines. Now, the writer of 2 Samuel doesn't really comment on this, but in Deuteronomy, we're told that the king should not collect wives and concubines because they would turn his heart away from the Lord. And David... His son, Solomon, obviously, is a clear picture of this reality. So we're keyed into that, right? And then this is what we read. In the spring, at the time when kings go off the war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. When kings are supposed to go off the war, the king is staying home in Jerusalem. Maybe this could be, you know, nothing to really think of. But then we're told in in verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. What we're being told here is that probably right after lunch, David decided he wanted to go take a nap. And he didn't wake up until it was evening. That's a long nap for a lazy king. He didn't go off the battle with his army as he should have. David's slumbering here. David, it might be good for him to hear the words of Ephesians 5.19. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. But in this narrative, we don't have the voice of a prophet. We don't even have the voice of God It seems to be from us, from our perspective, that David is running this story. David is the one who is the king, who is looking from his palace all over all that he has collected. And he is thinking, I am great. I am mighty. I can have what I want. I can take what I want. I can rule. I can push. I can send. In fact, that verb, send, David sent Joab. David sent someone to find out about her. David sent messengers to get her. Happens eight, eleven times in this chapter. It tells us that this is an emotionless, power-hungry king. And this is the king after God's own heart. It's a warning. It's a warning to us. Look how quick this action is. We're told that David sees Bathsheba. She's bathing. The words describing her, very beautiful, are rare. So what we're being told is that Bathsheba is extremely attractive. David sends someone to find out about her. But look at what this attendant of David says. It's formed in a question. Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? It's almost as if to say, you know who this is, David. In fact, the fact that Bathsheba is described as the daughter of Eliam 
would be uncommon at that time. If you're married, you're always described as the wife of, not the daughter of. But here, daughter of a lion, wife of Uriah the Hittite, both of these names are mentioned in her description because this messenger wants to key David into the fact that this woman is a prominent woman because Uriah the Hittite, your servant, is among your mighty men, one of your great soldiers, and Eliam is a counselor in your courts. And by the way, David, she's married wife of Uriah. I don't know what you're thinking, but you shouldn't be thinking this. But this warning is disregarded. David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. That, the terseness of that language. You see how quick the king has fallen. You see how quick the hope that he would be the true and faithful Adam of a new Eden snuffed out. That he would be the true and faithful anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah, <coughs> snuffed out. And it's important to pause at this moment because oftentimes when we read stories like this, we think to ourselves, yeah, but I couldn't do that. I wouldn't fall like that. Not me. If that's what you're thinking, you've already taken the first step towards your own fall. Because when we read 2 Samuel chapter 11, the words that we should be thinking are this. If not for the grace of God, there go I. For if David, the Goliath slayer, the head crusher, if David, the sweet singer of Israel, can fall, so can I. So can I. We're told then, in verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant, this is bad news. This is bad news because David thinks at this point, I don't want to be in a paternity battle. I want to forget about this sin and leave it behind. So he's got a plan. And that's why he begins his interaction with Uriah. Send me Uriah the Hittite. It's interesting that this is his name, Uriah the Hittite. The Hittites were some of the Canaanites who lived in the promised land. But we are being told here that somehow some of these Canaanites have become part of the people of Israel. Uriah has been given a good Yahwistic name, a Jewish name. And the irony here is that Uriah the Hittite of foreign descent is the most faithful Israelite in this entire story. So Joab sends Uriah to David. Uriah comes to him. And then David says to Uriah in verse 8, Go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, in Israel at this time, wash your feet would have been a uh, slightly less appropriate or a slightly appropriate way of saying, Go enjoy marital relations. And if you don't think that's what's being said, we read in verse 11 when Uriah expresses that why he didn't go back to his house and lie with my wife is because he, as a faithful soldier of Israelite, took his 
solemn vow as a soldier that in the time of war he would abstain from sexual relations with his wife and he could not bear the fact that all of his soldier buddies were sleeping in tents and he was going to go enjoy the pleasures of his home and his wife. That isn't going to happen. So Uriah, in a very real sense, is shaming David. Uriah becomes the David in verse 11. He says, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. David wanted to build a temple for God, but God was telling him, no, you're not going to be able to, right? David is the one staying home in his wonderful, beautiful, big palace while the rest of the army is off in battle. And Uriah's like, I'm not going to enjoy my palace. How can I go to my house, eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. The irony here is that this disobedience of the king's command is the most obedient act. In 2 Samuel chapter 11. Then David said to him, stay one more day. He got him drunk and tried to get him to go home and sleep with his wife. The funny thing here is that Uriah, drunk, is more faithful than David, sober, in this story. That's what we're being told. And there's another irony in verse 14. We're told that David sent Uriah with his own death warrant to the front lines of the battle. He sent David, sent Uriah with his own death warrant. How cruel can that be? And Joab carried out David's plan, but in order to not be suspicious, Joab mixed in some more soldiers with Uriah. And so now David's sin of adultery, which is punishable by death in Deuteronomy, David's sin of adultery is compounded now by murder, but not only murder of Uriah, murder of multiple soldiers in order to cover up the sin. And then we're told Joab sent a messenger back to David. And the messenger is, said, is told, if David gets upset, because he very likely will, because it seems to be that we're being told that David's policy is he doesn't like it when Joab unnecessarily risks his soldiers' lives. If David gets upset, make sure you tell him Uriah the Hittite's dead. The messenger comes back. He gives the report. In verse 25, we're told, David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. In fact, in the Hebrew, this is, don't let this be evil in your eyes. Don't let this be evil in your eyes. David who does not like it when Joab unnecessarily risks his soldiers' lives, is glad to hear the news that a a bunch of soldiers have died because guess what? Uriah the Hittite has been murdered and now his sin is covered up. He can keep it hidden. He doesn't have to tell anybody. He doesn't have to let anybody know. He's in control. He's the one sending. He's the one accomplishing this. Don't let this be evil in your eyes, Joab. The sword devours one as well as another. Press your attack against the city Destroy it. It's important that we notice David's words. Don't let this be evil in your eyes. Because very end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're told this. Although you may think 
But God has been silent in this count. Although you may think that David is the one who is in control, experiencing or displaying a false sovereignty, so to speak. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Hebrew says, the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Yahweh knows. God sees. God has seen the fall of his king. The question is, what is God going to do? Because God has every right to enforce the full weight of his law which he has given. And that is that those who commit adultery are deserving of death, both the man and the woman. Those who commit murder deserve the justice of the loss of their life. 2 Samuel chapter 12 tells us that David experiences something different. He gets what he does not deserve. He gets grace. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Who was doing the sending in 2 Samuel chapter 11? David was. Who's doing the sending in 2 Samuel chapter 12? The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when David or when Nathan came to David, he crafted this beautiful and wonderful story. It's a story that expresses to us that not only is God's grace pursuing us, pursuing those who have fallen into sin, God's grace pursues, but God's grace is also wise. Because in this story that Nathan presents to David, he allows David to bring judgment to himself. But God's conviction comes not only of the full force heavy judgmentalism but God's grace can also come with a wisdom a wisdom that allows you allows us to have our own consciences pricked and to see the truthfulness the righteousness the goodness of God's ways and to look into the mirror and say you're right God I'm a sinner I've been sinning. I've been hiding. The wise grace of God is seen here in the story that Nathan tells about a rich man who has plenty of uh, sheep and lambs, but a poor man who only has this one ewe lamb, and he takes care of this ewe lamb, and this ewe lamb is like a daughter to him. But this rich man has a friend, and he doesn't want to take any of his own goods, and so he takes the poor man's ewe lamb, and he kills that, and he serves that to, this, to his guest. And David, he says something important here. He burns with anger against the man. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. What's funny about what David says is that the sin of adultery and murder deserved the death penalty. But the stealing of sheep only required a fourfold replacement, which is what David says. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And of course... The famous words of verse 7. You are the man, David. 
I one time saw at the end of a letter that had been written to a gentleman with kindness. Thank you, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. You're the man. Different connotation here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You're not the man because you're highly favored or you're great or you're cool or you're good. Dave, you're the man because you are the rich man who stole the ewe lamb from the poor man. You are the one who had been given much by Yahweh. You have been given all this. It all came from God. You sat on on top of your palace and you said, this is all mine. See this kingdom? It's mine and I can take what I want. But you did not forget. You You forgot that God is the one who has given you all this. And even in all your wealth and all that you had, you reached for more. And you took what was not yours. And you killed. And you murdered. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And then we see here that there is an equality, a punishment. David took down Uriah's life by the sword. God promises that the sword would never leave the house of David. In fact, this is the turning point in David's family's life. All of the rest of 2 Samuel is going to be marked by hardship in David's life. Betrayal. Deception. The sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So not only did David kill Uriah by the sword, but David took Uriah's wife. So God says, your wives will be taken. But you did this in darkness, I'm going to do this in broad daylight. Verse 13, though, we see the repentance that David has. He said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And maybe many people have read this and thought, wow, David got off easy. Saul, when he sinned, he lost his kingdom. Gone. David, with these few short words, sinned against the Lord, has the reply from God, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But of course, if we read Psalm 51, it has a very interesting description at the beginning. It says, the confession of David when Nathan the prophet came to him concerning his adultery with Bathsheba. And Psalm 51 has been a penitent psalm used by many sinners throughout the ages. Perfectly displays true repentance as it should be. An acknowledgement that all sin is against God. That we are dependent upon God for His grace, His expression of grace. That if He cleanses us, we will be forgiven our sins. The, the, the cry to God that he, he not take His Holy Spirit from us. But to cleanse us with His own. To wash us white as snow. This is a just grace though. It is not simply that in grace we get what we do not deserve. That's true. But oftentimes there are some consequences for our sin. We're told the sword will never leave David's household. And his wives will be stolen from him. And also we hear 
that the child that David and Bathsheba conceived would die. But it is very interesting that we take note that this hardship that has come upon David's life is also the very same hardship that thrust him into the face of his Lord. You see, in the midst of this hardship that David is now experiencing, that he is told that this child that he has had is going to be taken from him. David runs into the tabernacle and he comes before the face of God and he prays and he fasts for seven days. Because not only is this grace a pursuing grace, a wise grace, a just grace, but this grace we see in the life of David is an experienced grace. David, once again, becomes the David that we once saw in the narrative of 2 Samuel. The sweet singer of Israel. The one that trusted in the Lord. That looked to the Lord. The one that prayed, fasted, and believed in the grace of God. When David heard that the child had died, he ceased from his fasting and his praying. And that disturbed his servants. And his servants asked, Why? Why are you now getting up and eating now that the child is dead? And he answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. Because David in this moment has now been reminded that in the midst of his great sin, his fallen sin, that God's grace is true and experienced. And if God can extend him grace in that, in his adultery and murder, then maybe God can extend grace to him and let the child live. Then he says, but now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. You see, in a very real sense, David deserved the death penalty for his sins against God for adultery, for murder. In a very real sense, that death penalty that David deserved, you could say, was transferred to this son that he had. And I don't want to look too far into this, but I want to tell you this because many of us here this morning have experienced the substitute, another son of David. Who came and he died. That we may not die for the sins we have committed against God. That promised seed of David to come. The descendant who would sit on the throne of David for all eternity. The one that we get a glimmer of hope in. When we read his last few words of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Where it says David comforted his wife Bathsheba. And when he went to her and lay with her, she gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. Shalom. Peace. That would come. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah. Loved by the Lord. 
Solomon is type, just as David is, of the coming Messiah, Mashiach, the anointed one that was to come. We saw that David could not be the king that Bathsheba needed. David was a king that used Bathsheba, abused his people, sinned against them, killed them, murdered them. Christ, the coming king, would be one who would serve, who would love, who would lay down his life for his bride. Who would come to set his people free from their sins. Christ is the king that Bathsheba waited for. Who would not abuse her, but adore her. Who would not use her, but love her. Who would die for her, rather than kill for her. Amen. We pray with you. Thank you, Lord, for these words. We pray that they would be a comfort to us as we consider the coming of our Messiah into this world. May they be a reminder to us to always pray that you would extend your grace to us that we may not fall into sin. But that if we do fall, you would forgive us. Forgive us for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ who is the true king of David, the true coming Messiah. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.